There it goes. Okay. Well, we are in Romans chapter 12, which we normally think of as kind of the beginning of the of the uh, kind of practical aspects of uh, of Romans. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we took uh, we took quite a bit of time actually, and we took a whole lesson to do. Verse 1, two weeks ago, and then we took another entire lesson to do verse 2 yesterday. Uh, And today, uh, uh, we'll pick up the pace a little bit, and I'd like to do verses 3 through 8, in which Paul deals with kind of the subject of of gifts, of spiritual gifts, etc., and we'll explore more of that in, in just a minute. But let's let's read beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, and read down through verse 8, and, uh, and then review and go on from there. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. If, in, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, or he who leads with diligence, uh, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Okay? So, going back, uh, what are some of the things you remember uh, from our discussion last week in verse 2? Translation of the word that here says transform. And I can't remember if we said that it could have also been non-conform, but that as one of the possibilities. Well, okay, good point. Uh, what I was trying to say there, and I may not make it clear, is that Paul had a word in Greek that would have said non-conform, and he chose not to use that word but to use the word that means transformed instead. Okay, So he actually avoided using the idea of nonconformity and chose to use rather the idea of being transformed. Okay, What's the significance of that? Nonconformed means you do everything opposite of the world. Okay. 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 And so... So, in our relationship, we don't look to the world to measure how we ought to do things, and we don't look to the world to measure how we ought not to do things. We look to the Scriptures, and we let the Scriptures conform us to Christ. 
to transform us like Christ. So, uh, so if we're if we're trying to be a non-conformist, we're still being controlled by the world. We're, our our behavior is still being dictated by the way the world operates. We're just doing everything just the opposite of the world. So, so the exhortation is not an exhortation to non-conformity, but a uh, but an exhortation to be transformed. What else? Okay, we listed up here on the board about, I don't know, 20 or so different areas in which the world thinks one way and Scripture uh, and the Lord tell us that we really ought to think or function differently. So, what we discovered is that there are a whole array of areas in which the world has a pattern it wants us to conform to, or as we said last week, a schematic drawing, if you will, that it wants to conform us to. And he uses that word, actually the word he's using there when he says, do not be conformed to the world. The root, the, the Greek uh, word there, the root of the Greek word there is the same word from which we get our word schematic, like a schematic drawing. And so you get this picture we can, as a way of uh, paraphrasing or illustrating the passage. You get a picture of a schematic drawing that the world has a schematic of your life. The way your life ought to be and what you, way you ought to think and what you ought to do in all these various areas and more than we listed up here on, that we listed on the board. So in areas of education and family and sex and money and, and in just all these various areas that we listed and, and many more that we, of course, didn't have time to list, the world has a way it thinks you ought to be and it wants to make sure you live that way. Okay? And Paul says, do not be pressed into that mold. Do not be conformed to that schematic. Okay? Uh, what else? He talked about the word prove that it's good and acceptable and that would be more test. It is good and acceptable, but you're just testing to show others and yourself. Okay. So what we're trying to do is we're trying, when we look at the various options, the various possibilities that are before us and the decisions we make in life, we want to know what the will of God is. We want to prove what the will of God is. Oftentimes, people talk about, how do I know the will of God? Well, the way we know the will of God, according to Romans 12:2, is we have our mind renewed. And if we have our mind renewed and so that we are transformed, if that happens, then we are in a place to be able to look at the options in front of us and to be able to prove or test or determine which ones of those options before us are God's will. And he gives us three, three measurements by which we tell if something is God's will, whether it's good, uh, whether it's perfect. Uh, I'm, I'm missing one. What am I forgetting there? Uh, acceptable, yes. Whether they're good or acceptable or perfect, those are three things that, that are markers of the will of God. And if our mind has been transformed, we're able to look at these things and we're, be, we're able to determine, okay, this particular option is the will of God, and this option here is not the will of God. Okay, and, and we're able to do that once we've had our minds renewed. We can't do it when our minds are conformed to the world. But when our minds have been renewed, we're in a place where we can determine what the will of God is. This will have some bearing on the things we talk about today in the era of spiritual gifts. What else? Okay. Okay, so, so it, has, it kind of has that dual meaning of this present age, this period of time we live in, okay, which basically encompasses all the time <clears throat> from the fall 
until the time when Christ comes back and 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 uh, sets up his kingdom. And uh, so this in this whole age, people think in a certain way. It's the way this this whole world thinks in this time frame. And we have to get out of this time frame. We have to get in that new age, that realm transfer that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And uh, once we get into that realm transfer, uh, once we once once what once we we recognize that our inner man has been is is now living in the new age, this new realm, the 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 kingdom of God. Then the trick is to, if I can use that term, the trick is to learn how to bring our bodies along as a living sacrifice, and through our bodies to live out the will of God. To do that, obviously, our minds have to be renewed. What else? Okay, and what were those? Okay, the two two ways, the two things that are essential elements of having our minds renewed, the two agents by which we get our mind renewed. One of them, of course, is very obviously the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the presence of the Holy Spirit as He leads us and directs us. And the second thing is having our, having our minds submerged in the Word of God, having our minds bathed with the Word of God. So as we have our minds bathed in the Word of God and the Spirit of God is active in our lives, then, then we have this process of renewal going on. Anything else? <clears throat> I kind of alluded to one thing here just, uh, just a moment ago, and that is the thing, that is the point that it is a process. This is not something that just suddenly happens and it's done and your mind is renewed and then suddenly from then on out you only think the way God wants you to think. Okay, This is a lifelong process. And so we are to be committed to this process our entire lives. There never comes a point in our life where we can say, okay, I've got this down. <laughs> I can coast from here on out. Uh, and there's two reasons for that. One is, as we saw last week with that huge list of things, uh, we've just got a whole lot to work on in this area of how we think. So, uh, thankfully, God doesn't work on all those areas at once, but He tends to take one or two of them at a time and focus on them and change our thinking in that area. And then we go, okay, I think I've got that kind of down. And then He moves on to another area. So, this is a process that goes on all of our lives. And the other reason I think it's a process is because we tend to kind of forget some of the things we learned, right? We get renewed. Uh, in an area, we begin to think the way God wants us to think in an area, and then we, we're back out in the world and we're rubbing shoulders with the world, and that pressure of the world to conform us to the mold begins to work on us, and, and, and we find our, and all of a sudden we go, man, I'm thinking like the world again. I thought I was past that. Okay? So it's a lifelong process of listening to the Holy Spirit and bathing our minds in the Word of God in order that that renewal can go on and we can begin to think the way God thinks and we can prove what the will of God is. Anything else? I was encouraged yesterday. Uh, I have uh, have two longtime uh, friends of mine. We've been friends. Uh, the three of us have been friends for about 40 years. And, and we just all happen to have birthdays this week. Uh, uh, we're within, within six days. All three of us have birthdays. 
And so once in a while, uh, we'll get together uh, and, and kind of just have a mutual birthday party. And we did yesterday. Uh, we had a mutual birthday party. And and uh, somewhere in the course of our four-hour conversation, uh, it just came out that we were that I was teaching through Romans 12, 1 and 2 the last couple of weeks. And, uh, and my one friend, Mark, <coughs> said, you know, that's the verse... That's the verse by which I came to Christ. That's the verse that, that, by which I was converted to Christ. And he's speaking actually about verse 1, where he says, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> where he talks about having our, uh, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. And he was sharing how he realized at one point in his life, he'd known that verse for many years, but he realized he hadn't actually done that, made his body a living sacrifice to God. And that that verse was the verse that led him to Christ. And it's just kind of cool to think about that. You never, sometimes it's really surprising when you find out what are the verses that God uses in people's lives to kind of be the trigger that finally kind of pushed them over the edge, so to speak. And uh, I would never, you know, if I was sharing the gospel with somebody, I don't know if I would have ever thought about sharing Romans 12, 1, because it's really directed at believers. Uh, but it was just kind of a, it was a neat story as he was sharing that yesterday. I was encouraged about that. So. Anything else you want to talk about about those two verses before we go on? <coughs> Excuse me, I don't know what's wrong with my throat here. <coughs> okay, he picks it up then in verse 3. And uh, and he speaks about this grace that's been given to him and that he the things that he is about to say, he's saying... Uh, through the grace, or it's, he's enabled to say these things, or he's in a place to say these things because of the grace that's been given to him. And then he goes on to talk about, <coughs> about not thinking more. <coughs> Excuse me. He goes on to talk about uh, not thinking of ourselves more highly. Than First, he says, "I'm saying I'm addressing this to all of you." He says, "Notice," he says, "I'm saying this." He says to everyone among you, and then he warns us about thinking more highly than we ought to think. And then, as, and then he goes on to talk about this grace that's been allotted, this measure of faith that's been allotted to each one of us. And, and, and then he moves into this discussion of the body and gifts, an analogy, of course, that we've seen in other places in Scripture as well, particularly in 1 Corinthians 14. So we have a little six-verse section here in Romans 12. Right at the beginning of this practical passage, practical portion of Romans chapter 12, in which he deals with the subject of what we call spiritual gifts. And, uh, and as we approach these verses, I think, you know, sometimes I think we go, I, I don't know, maybe you don't, but it's, I, sometimes I kind of do, I kind of go, oh, this again? <laughs> you know, I mean, how many times have we heard teaching or preaching on the subject of spiritual gifts. You know, we just talk about it a lot. At least it seems to me. I don't know if it does to you, but it seems like we talk about this subject an awful lot. And, and I suppose there's good reason for doing that. Uh, but as I was approaching this, I was thinking, okay, it's, this is something that, that Paul thinks it's really important. I mean, he puts it right at the front of this whole section of He's going to go into all kinds of practical things. And this is something that just comes right to the front. And it seems like it comes right off the heels of having talked about having his mind renewed. And so, 
So it really, apparently, is something that's pretty important. And yet, oftentimes, I think it's, it's possible for us to kind of think it's just kind of a, it's kind of a lesser subject. You know, it's just, it's just kind of, it's kind of something we, we, we talk about, but we'd rather talk about something else, okay? But we have to talk about this. But I really do think this area of gifting is really pretty exciting because it tells us some significant things about God and it tells us some significant things about ourselves. And, and I think, I think part of the problem for me when we talk about spiritual gifts is that is that usually when we talk about spiritual gifts, or oftentimes when we talk about spiritual gifts, is we move very quickly to the list of gifts, what they are and what they look like and how to do them. Okay? And those are important things to talk about. And I'm not saying that those aren't important things to talk about. But what strikes me here in this passage is that I think what Paul is giving us in these verses is just just kind of the big picture about gifts. He does give us a list, but the list that he gives us here is not exhaustive. It's not complete. We know that because if we go to other places in Scripture where gifts are listed, there are gifts listed that are not in this list. There are only seven here. If we go to 1 Corinthians or we go to Ephesians or we go to some of the other places, we'll find other gifts listed that aren't here. So this is not an exhaustive list. So whatever Paul's doing here, he's not trying to give us an exhaustive, complete list of the gifts. And so I think that tells us a little bit about what Paul's trying to do here. He's not, he's not so much focused on what the gifts are, but how we think about the gifts and what we do with the gift we do have. Okay. So in other words, what I think Paul is doing here is he's kind of giving us some big picture issues. So I'm not going to focus so much today. We'll talk a little bit about these individual gifts. But I'm not going to focus so much on the individual gifts. But I want to focus rather on the big picture and what this list of gifts tells us about the big picture of this whole concept of of spiritual gifts. Now, to some degree, uh, some degree, I think it'd be good if we even got away from the term spiritual gifts. Not not that it's a bad term, but I think sometimes it. We use some terms and eventually they become kind of rote to us and we don't think about them. Like clearly, they are spiritual and they are gifts. Okay, but it's but it's really interesting that the that the word that Paul uses here is the word, of course, that comes from a root word that gives us the word grace. So in really in one sense, uh, some people call them rather than calling them spiritual gifts, they call them grace gifts. Okay which is kind of a cool term. It kind of puts the focus where it needs to be in some sense. But in one sense, that's even redundant. What they are is they're graces. That God has given to us graces. Okay? Now, we know He's given to us grace, generally speaking. But He's also given to us graces. And these graces that He's given to us are, as we study them and as we look at them, we discover that they are abilities to do things, okay? Uh, or they, in some cases, they are offices within the church. So in Ephesians, we have, for example, the grace of apostleship. That's an office within the church. Uh, it was in the New Testament era. And that, incidentally, is the grace to which Paul is referring here at the beginning when he says, I speak through the grace that is given to me. What he's talking about there within the context, he's talking about the fact that he's an apostle. 
So he's doing here what, he, what we saw him doing earlier. He's, is he's about to give us an exhortation based on his apostolic authority. But he does it very gently. It's kind of a gentle command, if you will. He doesn't just come up and say, I'm an apostle and you need to do what I say. But rather he just simply says, I've been graced with this responsibility. I've been graced with this task within the body of Christ. And I have been graced with the ability to do this. And so what I'm about to tell you is coming from the fact that I'm an apostle, but that's really coming from God. It's not coming from me. It's not because I'm cool and I've got my act all together or I'm particularly smart or anything like that. It's coming because God has been gracious to me. And God, in being gracious to me, has given me this office and this ability to serve as an apostle. And I'm speaking in that position to you. So it's a very gentle command, but we shouldn't miss the point that Paul's making here. This is not some kind of little lesser issue that we can just kind of take it or leave it. He's making a point to us. This is coming to us on the basis of apostolic authority. This is something God wants us to hear. Okay? So he says, I'm speaking this on the basis of the grace that's given to me. I'm speaking this on the basis of the gift that I have, which is the gift of apostleship. And to whom is he addressing it? To everyone. He's not addressing this to only those people who have gifts. Well, he is. But my point is, there's not a subset within the church that are gifted, and he's addressing those. He's addressing everyone among you. Now, this is a church where Paul has never been. He's never been to Rome. He, as we get to Romans chapter 16, we'll see that he does know a few people who are now in Rome because he's met them at other times and in other places. So he knows a few people. But in general, he doesn't know these people in Rome. He's never met them before. He has no idea, except mighty what, he, what he might have heard through letters or something like that. He has no idea what gifts these people might have. But he addresses what he addresses to every single one of them. So what we're learning from this is that when we come to this area of gifts, this is, this is a principle we discover that everybody has one and everybody is responsible to obey the apostolic admonition that comes to us in these verses. And the admonition that comes to us as pertains to gifts. Now, he uses in, uh, in verse... Uh, excuse me, let me get back here. Uh, he, in verse 3, he uses uh, the word think four times. You only, in your English translation, you only three, see it three. But he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound Thinking, sound judgment, it says in my translation. Okay. So, so the idea has to do with how we think. Paul's instructing us here in about the way we think, but not just the way we think generally or in some general sense, 
but specifically how we think about ourselves and how we think about others pertaining to this idea of what has been given to us, the abilities that have been given to us, the graces, the spiritual gifts that have been given to us. And he's concerned that we might not be thinking right about this. He's concerned that it's possible that we might not be thinking with sound judgment. When we look at ourselves and we look at other people and we contemplate this idea of their abilities as they are practiced or exercised within the church, chances are we have a problem not thinking right about those things. So he says, I'm writing to every one of you and this admonition is to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Now, again, we could apply that in a whole host of areas, couldn't we? Specifically, what Paul has in mind is this area of our spiritual gifts. Now, as we move down through the verses, it becomes clear that Paul one of the things Paul's concerned about is that people have gifts they're not using. That becomes clear. Or that there's a tendency to have gifts that we do not use. And so, as we get later in these verses, the admonition kind of shifts to the idea of you got it, use it. Okay? That's where he's going eventually. But he starts out with this problem of the tendency we have in this area of gifts, to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And that, as in my experience, in my own life, and as I observe in other people's lives, I think that manifests itself in a couple ways. One is, it's very easy for us to think our gift is the most important gift. Or it's certainly among the most important gifts. And it's really, it's really fascinating to me how quickly we gravitate to this idea. And how quickly we express that thought or that idea. Okay? Uh, I, I do think as we get a little older, sometimes we get a little more balanced in this. But, because I notice this particularly a lot among young people. But, but I don't think that... that that as we get older, we're totally immune to this either. That, that we tend to think what I'm doing is really the most important thing and everybody ought to be paying attention to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have a gift of teaching. I, I believe that. People tell me that. You know, I've believed it for many years that I have a gift of teaching. And of course, if you have a gift of teaching... Attendant to that is the ability to take things, you know, take the scriptures and study them and analyze them and do things with them, okay? And these things are all essential to what I do when I'm standing up here teaching. They're fundamental. I've got to do those first things before I can do this, okay? It's very easy for me to think that everybody ought to study the Bible the way I study the Bible. And everybody ought to be as good at studying the Bible as I, not that I'm particularly fantastic at it, but everybody ought to be at least as good as I am, okay? That's just the way we typically are. And if, you're, if your gift is, say, mercy or service or something like that, 
oftentimes what happens is you get so focused on the needs, the personal needs of people in the church, and you wonder why everybody else isn't working as hard as you are to alleviate those problems, to meet those needs that people have. Uh, that you see, maybe financial needs or physical needs or emotional needs or whatever. And you're gifted in that area. And when you don't see other people putting out like you're putting out and doing what you're doing, then it becomes easy to think that they're falling short. That all of that, what that is, is that's thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. It's thinking our gift is more important than it ought to be. Now, certainly... You know, I, that, that doesn't go to say, uh, I'm not trying to say here that, that we can't all grow in the area of mercy. We can't all grow in the area of Bible study or, you know, in, in any of these other areas of gift. And when the Scriptures teach that there are gifts and people are particularly good in them, that doesn't, that doesn't excuse the rest of us from doing anything in that area. If somebody has the gift of mercy, and I go, okay, they have the gift of mercy, so I never have to show mercy. Well, that's absurd. We know from Scripture that we're all responsible for showing mercy. We're all responsible to study to show ourselves approved unto God. We're all responsible to do some in all of these areas, but some people are really skilled and really gifted in those areas. And, and one of the reasons they're gifted, we learn in another passage, is in order they might equip us to do it at least a little bit. Okay, so if somebody's really gifted in their mercy, they're gifted to do that, but they're also gifted to help me learn how I can be a little better at it because I don't know how to do it. So I learn from them, but I'll never be as good as they are because they're gifted and I'm not. So one of our problems that we have is we tend to think of ourselves and we tend to think of our gift as more important than it really is within the context of the whole church. I think another thing we do, though, it's kind of the flip side of that is we tend to think our gift is really not all that important. I mean, here are these people who do this and they do that. And, all, you know, and my gift, that's my gift just this little gift over here. And it's just really not in that important. And so, I can afford to neglect it and focus my energies on myself. Focus my energies on my job and my house and my kids and my, you know, and, and all the other things that, that are legitimate issues and legitimate things to invest our time in, but we let those take a priority in our lives, uh, at least, and they are, many of them are priority issues, but we let them take a place in our life where they overthrow our responsibility to the church. We think, my gift's not that important, so I can get away with neglecting it. And that's really a way of thinking of myself more highly than I ought to think, isn't it? Because what it is, is it's placing my interests, my personal concerns, the things I want to be doing, the things I think are important about me, they're placing them over the needs of the body. Because one of the things we discover in Corinthians is that every manifestation of the Spirit, he says, every gift of the Spirit is given for the common good. So every gift that we find listed and all the gifts we don't find listed, and I personally think there are some we don't find listed. Not everybody does. But I think there are more gifts than those that are listed because none of the lists of gifts are exhaustive. And so he gives us a list here and he gives us a list here. And somebody said, well, if we put all those together, then we know for sure what all the lists are. Well, I don't think that. I just I think there are a lot of gifts out there we may not know exactly what they are. But... Be that here nor there, whatever. 
I forgot where I was going with that. So we'll just leave that thought hanging. Okay. Uh, so, so, so at any rate, we, oh, we were talking about the fact that we have gifts we think are not important. And what's really important is my own life. What I'm doing in my life. So I can afford to neglect my obligation to the church. That's where I was going with it. That every gift is given for the common good. When I neglect my gift, I am neglecting the body. I am neglecting the church. And I'm thinking of myself as more important than the body of Christ. That's where I was going with that. Okay? So, so Paul says, I don't want you... To be thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. I don't want you to be thinking your gift is more important than it really is in the context of the church. That you're more important and what you're doing is more important than everybody else. And I don't want you thinking that your, that your gift is so important, unimportant, that you can neglect it and just live for yourself. That's thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But he says, I want you to think with sound judgment. I want you to think soberly. So we kind of get a, you know, kind of the idea is if we're not thinking with a sound judgment, we're thinking judgment, we're not thinking soberly, then we're thinking like drunkards. <laughs> We've all seen drunk people before. They're not really coherent. And when I'm not thinking right about this subject of gifts and about other people and their gifts, and me and my gifts, when I'm not thinking properly about that, I'm kind of like a drunkard in the church. I'm just kind of staggering around, and I'm not doing a lot of good, and I'm probably doing a lot of damage. So I need to think soberly about this. I need to think with sound judgment. And then he brings up a phrase that just throws commentators and and scholars, just kind of throws them in a circle here, and, and so we'll have to wrestle with it. He says... But I want you to think, um, uh, excuse me, he says, he says, I want you to think so as sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Okay. And uh, this phrase, thinking so as, uh, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith, is very similar to the phrase in verse 6 where he speaks of the prophets and he says, I want the prophets, prophets to prophesy according to the proportion of his faith. Okay? And I think all the commentators that I read see, that those, see those two phrases as talking about the same thing. They're, they're talking about the same thing there. Okay? And it certainly seems to me that, he, that, that Paul is referring, whatever he's referring to, he's referring to the same thing. And... Uh, and and as I read the various commentaries on this, it was kind of interesting because I because I'd read some and they'd be very dogmatic about okay it's not this it's this but when I'd read what they thought it was I'd go I have no clue what you're saying <laughs> so you're maybe very dogmatic that this is what it is but I have no clue what you just said <laughs> and uh, so I really had to kind of wrestle with it to figure out you know what is it that Paul is trying to say here okay and and there's kind of two general ways of viewing the, viewing the phrase, the measure of our faith, or having allotted the measure of our faith, or thinking so as to, uh, in accordance with this allotted or distributed measure of faith. Okay. And one of them is, one view is the idea that, 
that faith he's talking about is the faith. It's, it's, um, it's the objective faith. And what we mean by that is it's the faith once for all handed down to the saints. It's the doctrine. It's the Christian faith. So it's this objective truth. And so that what, according to this view, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I want you all to think in accordance with this Christian truth, this doctrine that's been handed down to us. Okay. And then goes on and applies it as it has to do with the subject of, uh, of gifts. Taking that idea that this measure of faith is this, this Christian doctrine handed down once for all to us, okay? Uh, and, and taking that idea, then going down to verse 6, which is jumping ahead a little bit, but we need to do this because the phrase is the same and means the same thing in both places, I believe, where he talks about the prophet prophesying according to the proportion of his faith. Okay. And, uh, and he uses a word, uh, uh, he uses a word there that from which we get our word analogy. The word proportion there has to do with the idea of, of, of in agreement with, in proportion to that idea, or analogous to. So it's the word from which we get, the Greek word is the, Greek, is the word from which we get our word analogy. Okay, And so when that concept of objective faith is brought down to the subject of the prophet and how the prophet prophesies, the idea is, the prophet should only prophesy those things which are analogous to, coincide with, or related to the faith. In other words, he doesn't get a prophecy, he doesn't get to say anything he wants to say. He has to say those things which are in concert with, in agreement with, the doctrine that we have. Okay? Well, that's certainly a very valid point. And, uh, and back in Reformation times, this... This idea was developed, I don't know if we say developed, I should say it was articulated in a phrase, this phrase that's used, you may come across it if you're reading about the Reformation or something, the analogy of faith is a term that's used. The analogy of faith, okay? And when Reformation writers speak about the analogy of faith, what they're talking about is the principle that we believe that when you're looking at any given passage of Scripture, it must be understood, it must be interpreted in light of the analogy of the faith. How does it compare, how does it relate to the rest of the faith? So in other words, I can't take a passage of Scripture and lift it out and say it says something different than what we know the faith says, that we know the totality of Scripture says. So the Reformation principle of the analogy of faith is the principle that every passage of Scripture must be understood and interpreted in light of the whole. Okay? That's what we mean by the analogy of faith. And so when the prophet speaks, he must speak in the analogy of faith. He must speak, whatever he speaks, must be in agreement with the totality of what we have. That's the first way of viewing this idea of the measure of faith. Okay? That's allotted to each one of us. The second way is... The first is the objective, the faith. The second is, is what we call sub, the subjective way of looking at it. And, and instead of the faith, I'm talking about your faith or my faith. Okay? It's my individual faith. Okay? And, and when it's seen in that light, the idea that's being communicated here by Paul 
is the idea that that if I'm going to think with sound judgment about the area of gifts, I need to be thinking according to the allotment of the of faith that I have received that has been distributed to me. In verse three, you'll notice he says. Uh, he says, uh, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted or divided or distributed to us the allotment of faith. OK. Uh, or, or the measure of faith. So there is a measure of faith and each one of us has been given. Has, there's been distributed to us by God or dispersed to us a measure of faith. And so the idea that comes across there is the idea that I don't have all the faith. I just have a measure. And every one of us has a measure. God has dispersed it. He has allotted to each one of us a certain measure of faith. Well, if I understand it that way, if I, if I think about that idea of a division where I get part and you get part, then it can't be talking about the objective faith, can it? Because the objective faith was once for all, it was handed down once for all to the saints. We all have the totality of the objective faith. But if we speak in a subjective sense, then we go, well, no, we don't. Because, see, I have a faith that enables me to stand up here and teach. Some of you don't have that faith, do you? If you were up here having to do what I'm doing right now, it'd drive you crazy, right? And you'd be all over the place and you'd be scared stiff and all that sort of stuff, okay? Because you just, this is not your gift, okay? But I have a faith to do this. If I try to do it without my faith, I'm going to bungle it too. But, but I have a faith to do this. And you have a faith that's given to you. The faith to be able to discern what your gift is and the faith to use that gift. The faith that when you employ that gift, you are acting vicariously on behalf of God in ministering to the common good of the church. Right? So you have this, you have this faith from God. So this idea of this measure of faith is really tied to your gift. And if you can't tell by the way I'm communicating these two ways of looking at it, I, I lean towards, I see a lot of validity in the first. And certainly the analogy of faith principle is a valid principle. But I just don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. It seems to me that what Paul's talking about here is the measure of faith that's given to each one of us individually to discern and exercise the faith that God, or the gift that God has given to us. And so what he wants us to do is he wants us to think with sound judgment according to the faith he's given to each one of us, according to the measure of faith that he's given to each one of us. That I have a gift that God has given to me. And you have a gift that God has given to you. And I'm not to think that my particular gift is more important than your particular gift or that I am more important than you are because I get to do my gift and you have to do some other gift. Okay. Not to think that way, but just to think, God has given me a gift. What is that gift? And how do I use it? How do I employ it? 
Well, so then he goes into his body analogy, right? Which we're very familiar with, particularly from Corinthians, that the church is like a body. Okay. And just like a body has many members, they all have a different function. They're still part of the same body. And he says, in the same way, he says, we who are many are one body in Christ and we are individually members one of another. He's stressing three separate ideas there. One is diversity. The second is unity. And the third is mutuality. Okay? Diversity. We're all different. When you walk into this room, you look in the room, you come in this room, and you go, oh, there's a bunch of people. There's a bunch of... And they're all different. You know, they all look different. They all act different. They all sound different. And if we really knew them, we'd know they're all... They all have different abilities. Okay? So there is diversity. But what we don't immediately detect when we walk into the room, and I see all these different diverse entities sitting in the chairs here, what I don't immediately detect is a spiritual reality that they're all actually one. They're all actually one. There is a unity that is not immediately observable to me. But it is a spiritual reality that they are all one. They are all the church, the body of Christ. So there is diversity. There is unity. But there's also mutuality. He says you are all individually members of one another. Sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? But... But the point is, we're not just diverse. We're not all just individuals. But as individuals, we are members one of another. So it's not just that I am a member of this oneness, the body of Christ, but I am a member of you. I am individually a member of you. In other words, it's not just that I have an obligation and a responsibility to this somewhat invisible entity, the church, but I have an obligation and responsibility with the ability that I have to you as an individual. It makes it very practical, doesn't it? It's, you know, it's, very, it's very easy to, to kind of think in the big term and, kind of, and then you know, kind of slide and not do what I'm... But, but when I'm confronted with you as an individual, then I go, how do I, you know, how do I function? How do I serve God in the common good for this individual? that's sitting across from me. So there's this mutuality. And I actually am one with you. I'm not just one with the body of Christ. I'm one with you as an individual. And you, unfortunately, are one with me too. Okay? So, so we have the body analogy. And then he goes into his list. And as I say, I don't think his list is exhaustive or the total list in Scripture is exhaustive and people would argue with me about that and that's fine. I'm not going to quarrel with you about it. But what is interesting to me is something we pick up in Corinthians. He doesn't talk about it here. Is that Paul says in 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 12, they're early in the chapter, he says there are varieties of gifts and there are varieties of ministries and there are varieties of effects. 
And so what we begin to see is this tremendous diversity. So we have, within this one church, we have a variety of gifts, okay? And, uh, you know, so there's, there's teaching and there's prophecy and there's, and there's uh, giving and there's serving and there's, okay, there's all these various gifts. But then he says there's varieties of ministries. Now, the way I understand what he's saying there is, let's, take, let's just take, uh, let's take teaching, for example, because I'm familiar with that. Okay. So, so there's a gift of teaching. Do all teachers have the same ministry? Obviously not. Don't, all teachers don't teach Sunday school classes, do they? Some teachers write books. Some teachers teach seminary classes. Some teachers, pre, uh, some teachers uh, preach the Sunday morning sermon. Some teachers do a blog on the Internet. Some teachers teach kindergartners up in, you know. There's all kinds of different ministries within the rubric of teaching. So I have, so with each one of these gifts, I have multiple ministries. How many of them are? How many different ways are there to teach? Good grief, who knows? All kinds of ministries of teaching, aren't there? But not only are there multiple ministries, but in each ministry, that, that teacher functioning in that ministry has different effects on different people, right? So one person responds to a teacher who's ministering, say, writing a blog, and this teacher is blogging on the Internet, and one person reads it and it affects them this way, and they go out and they serve God this way, and somebody else, it affects them another way. And they go out and they and so with this multiplicity of ministries, we have a multiplicity of effects. That's how the body of Christ gets edified. So it's not just an issue of a diversity of gifts. It's a diversity of ministries and it's a diversity of effects. And what happens as a result of that is the entire body of Christ, if it's working, the entire body of Christ gets edified. And I have the effect in my life that God wants to have by all of you exercising your gift in your ministry. And, and you have the effect in your life that God wants to have by, the, by, by all the members of the body of Christ exercising their gift in their ministry. So, so, what we, so this is one of the reasons why I, 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 think it's, you know, I think it's pointless to try and say this is the definitive list of gifts. Because that's really not the issue. The issue isn't, isn't can I make a final list and, and I have to put everybody into one of those categories? Because really that's not the issue. This is the issue down here. What effect am I going to have? So, so Paul gives this list, and it's, like I said, it's only a list of seven. It's not exhaustive. And it's really interesting. The translators, when they translate it, they put a lot of words in here because in the Greek it's so simple it's hard to understand. Because in the Greek it's like if teaching, teaching. If serving, serving. That's all. There's no, na- there's, excuse me, there's no pronoun. We see pronouns in our translation. There's no pronoun and there are no verbs in his list. Okay. So it's very kind of abrupt. And it's like Paul is just saying, for Pete's sake, people, just do it. Just do it. You have a gift. 
Get with it. Now, his emphasis seems to kind of change as he goes through this. At the beginning, he talks about the prophet prophesying according to the proportion of his faith, the analogy of faith or whatever. Okay. Uh, and, then, and then he talks about just if teaching, teaching. If, you know, if, if serving, serving. And then, and then he gets down at the la- at toward the, la- the last few and he says, well, if it's giving, then do it with generosity. If it's, you know, if it's uh, uh, mercy, then do it with cheerfulness. And so it kind of moves from it kind of moves from the idea of give, doing your gift according to your according to your measure of faith. Just do it. Do it with the right attitude. So it's kind of it's kind of like he's moving as he moves through his list. He kind of changes his emphasis. So so. In his first one there where he says to prophesy according to the proportion of his faith, I don't think the suggestion there would be that only the prophet needs to prophesy in according to the proportion of his faith. But, but we all need, whatever gift we are exercising, we need to do it according to the proportion of faith, the measure of faith that God has given to us. The faith to discern my gift and the faith to practice it, to exercise it, okay? And I need to do that. And and then I just need to do it, okay? If I if by faith I've discerned what it is, by faith I've discerned how it's supposed to be done, then I just need to do it. But I don't just do it, but I do it with the right attitude. If it's you know, if it's if it's mercy, then I need to be doing it with cheerfulness. If it's, it's leading, I need to be doing it with diligence. Okay? So the idea then is just do it. Okay? Now remember that this is a uh, this is an apostolic admonition. It's not an option to us, folks. This is not an option. The gift that God has given to me and expects me to exercise, He does because it is a reflection of the trying nature of God. The diversity of the church in unity is a reflection of the triunity of God. When the church fails to properly demonstrate this diversity in unity, we do not correctly picture God. It's a very important subject. It's a very important area. So, so I need to be, I need to be doing my gift, and you need to be doing your gift, in order that the church might illustrate to the world what God is like. Well, one of the things that's interesting to me as we read this is we go, well, Paul, where's the formula? How do I figure out what my gift is? Now, how many times have you heard that question? How do we figure out what our gift is? And I don't know how many various studies and seminars, etc., that I've been in, in my Christian experience, trying to explain to me and to others how to discern, how to know what your gift is. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Well, there's a lot of people who don't. And the question is, how do you find out what your spiritual gift is? And one of the things that's very popular, have been for the last... 40 years or so, 
uh, I remember the first time I encountered one thing's very popular. We've done it here at Trinity, so I'm not going to say it's you know it's not a useful tool. Is is we do these kind of uh, uh, personality profile things, right? We take these personality profile tests, and by these personality profile tests, we figure out what my personality is, and that gives me some clues where where my spiritual abilities lie and all that sort of thing. You know, maybe there's some validity in that. Those things drive me nuts. But some people benefit from them. So I'm not going to say, I'm not going to write them off. But the question I ask myself is, doesn't the Bible tell us how to find out what our gift is? Are we left to modern pop psychology as our only answer to figure out what our spiritual gift is? How did the people in Paul's day do it? They didn't have pop psychology. At least not 21st century pop psychology. So how do they figure out what their gift is? Well, you didn't think it was in those verses, but actually it is. So, well, it's not in the verses we're looking at today. It's in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may what? Prove what the will of God is. How does somebody really discover their gift as, their, as they are transformed by having their mind renewed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God so that they are enabled to discern what the will of God is. And what better way, what better area to discern the will of God than what does He want me doing in the church? What am I good at? Well, I can say, we do the first time things that work because it does tell us. Sure, yeah, yeah. But it's different. It's not mm-hmm. spiritual gifts. Mm-hmm. And that's an important point, too, is I think there is a correlation between spiritual gifts and natural abilities. But spiritual gifts are spiritual. They only work when the Spirit's working. And, uh, and so... So I think there's definitely a correlation. The spiritual work in the church can only be done by a spiritual gift. So it, I do think they correlate to natural abilities. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a benefit from these profile things, okay? But ultimately, your spiritual gift will only work when it's empowered by the Spirit. I think it will only be revealed to you in many cases. And, and I, yes, and yes, and it only will. And, but... But the key is, if I am submerging my mind in the Word of God and listening to the Holy Spirit, I am going to detect and see needs in the church. And if I detect and see those needs, and I find myself addressing those needs because I'm responsive to the Holy Spirit, in some areas, I will be particularly successful. Effective is maybe a better term. And as that happens, as that process happens, I am beginning to discover this is my ability. How did I learn that I had the teaching gift? Well, it wasn't from a profile analysis of my, of my temperament. Although that fits in there, okay. But that wasn't how. I just was one time given an assignment. Rick, we're having a Bible study. You teach it. And I taught it. And somebody came up to me and said, I've never heard anything like that before. And I went, oh, wow. Yeah. And I began to learn. I began to learn. Okay. So it's as we listen to the Holy Spirit 
have our minds submerged in the Word so that our minds are renewed. We look at the church. We discern the needs of the church. And we seek to address those needs within the church, whatever it is, whether it's serving or leading or teaching or giving or mercy or whatever it is. And we seek to address that need. As we become effective in that, our gift will be revealed to us. And let me just say one other thing. We'll quit. And that is, we can help people in this process. You know how you can help people? When you see somebody do something in a church and it works, tell them that was good. When we encourage people, when we let them know that they, what they've done, they've done well, that helps them discover what they're good at doing. Like I say, that's how I discovered my gift. I think I, I personally did. I probably have more than one. People would argue with that. But I think I have more than one. But, but in those areas where I think I have some gift, one of the reasons I know that is because I've been submerged in the Word, because the Spirit has been directing me, but it's also because I've had brothers and sisters in Christ who have come to me and said, boy, you did that well, Rick. And I go, hey, maybe I'm good at that. So that's one way you can help me. Well, we're out of time. Uh, so uh, we're way out of time. So <laughs> sorry about that.